told you about the five spiritual faculties this morning, but I've only described one, the lead one, the one that is, so to say, in charge. None of the other faculties or qualities in us can be developed if we're not aware. So meditation has that facet embedded in it also to make us more aware so that those things which in the past have just sort of bypassed us because they didn't seem important will now become part of our experience. Mindfulness is that aspect of us which does that for us. The other two pairs, the first one is called faith and wisdom, and the other, the second one is called energy and concentration. Maybe I'll take energy and concentration first. If these two aren't balanced, on one side we can have too much energy which produces restlessness. The mind, so to say, works overtime. And with too much mental energy, which would be possibly useful in a business enterprise, if one is an executive and has to have lots of new ideas to uh, make some money, that kind of mental energy is totally useless in order to become concentrated. We do not need new ideas. We've got too many already. We need to let them go. So a mind which is very energetic and therefore has a lot of thought projections is one which has to use its faculty of being able to think well rather than the lacking faculty of concentration. Now that means that a person, and there are people like that everywhere, a person who has that kind of mind, which is constantly going from one thing to the next and actually thinks things out. They're not just fragments and they're not just reactions, but they are actual thought processes. But the mind cannot stand still, needs to use insight rather than serenity to start out with. A little bit of insight brings a little bit of tranquility or serenity. A little bit of serenity brings a little bit of insight. Technically speaking, it doesn't matter whether we start with this one or that one. But from a practical standpoint, it is easier to have a calm mind first, if we can manage. But there are those people who can't. That's all right, too. They have to use the quality of the mind which they already have and know about, which is an ability to think well and probably also enjoy that 
and bring it to bear upon that what is happening in meditation. Namely, in the first instance, instead of trying to just be with the breath and become calm without thinking, seeing the impermanence of each breath, watching actually how the in-breath is finished and a new breath starts, seeing the impermanence of each thought. If we mean the meaning of seeing it is experiencing it. There is a world of difference between thinking about and experiencing. We can think about all sorts of fantastic, wonderful, hopeful, colorful ideas, but can we experience them? The, the difference is as vast as being alive or dead. It has no connection with each other, except that there has been some thought, but it hasn't been experienced. So the person who is a perennial thinker, and in our Western society, that's not uncommon, because it is the thing that we are being trained for in all our institutions of learning, to be perennial thinkers. The more we think, the more we are told we can earn. So we think. So it's not uncommon to be saddled with that difficulty. But instead of thinking this breath is impermanent, noticing it. When it has come in, it's finished. Then it goes out, and it's finished again. Doesn't that sound simple? And yet, it's not as simple as it sounds. Now, this next thought process, which could follow that experience, could be that my life depends upon a per totally impermanent intake of breath and a totally, imperm totally impermanent outbreath. My life is depending upon that steady in and out of air. And that kind of thought process, while it is thinking, is based on the personal experience of that impermanence and is based upon reality and not wishful thinking. Our lives do depend on that. We can't stay alive for more than two minutes without that impermanent in and out. And what is it? Just air. That's all. And we depend on that. Does that take us a peg down? It should. We have been taught, unfortunately, that we are the pinnacle of creation. What a creation. I hope we don't believe it. We depend upon this bit of air going in and out. Now the next thought process after that can be 
every thought I've ever had is gone. I can't even remember it. Every feeling I've ever had, it's gone. Every sensation, physical, that I've ever had, it's also gone. I may have a new one, but that one's going to go again. So where am I going to find something that I can actually latch on to and say, that's me? Which one? The thought? Well, maybe I decide at that moment, because it's a bit scary not to find anything at all that could be called me, maybe I decide at that moment, then if I can't call a particular thought me, then maybe I can call billions or trillions of thoughts me. But how about those that aren't so wholesome? Are they me too? So then I have to look again at all this coming and going. And not only is it the thought and the feeling and the sensation, but what about this body? <coughs> and as we sit in meditation, we can also feel, if we become a little more attentive, that there is inner movement in the body, which may give rise to the thought process that that inner movement is part and parcel of this body manifestation and probably the cause for it getting and looking older all the time. So if we can't get concentrated on the breath as a means for tranquility, but have a mind that thinks and thinks and thinks, use it for a purpose. Use it for the purpose of investigating an underlying reality which will eventually be our springboard for letting go of all the inconsequential and troublesome ideas which we have in the mind and which are constantly causing us problems. Impermanence is our springboard. The contemplation we did this morning has impermanence on four of the contemplations. Decay, disease, death, all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Four on impermanence, one on karma. As the mind that is incapable of concentrating on the breath as a means for serenity concentrates on the impermanent happenings within mind and body, it may give rise to contemplation on the decay which is inherent in the body. Anything is better than discursive thinking. It is also not very useful to battle with oneself. Our mind should not become a battleground because when we battle against all that discursive thinking and start blaming ourselves, which is also quite common, for not being able to become peaceful and serene, staying on the breath, it gets worse and worse. An alternate option is possible. Instead of using the pathway to serenity, using the pathway to insight by using the impermanence as it is happening within. 
For those people who don't find it that difficult to concentrate on the breath, an investigation of the impermanence of all the things that are happening is also very useful and beneficial. The more we can see ourselves as an impermanent manifestation which is constantly in flux, the less bothered we are by all the things that are happening to us. And nobody is exempt. Everybody's got something happening which they would rather not have happening. That is the first noble truth, the noble truth of Dukkha. Is there anybody here that doesn't know the word Dukkha? Anybody? Okay. You know Dukkha, but you probably haven't heard the word yet. The word Dukkha <laughs> is translated very often as suffering, but that is not the most correct translation. Unsatisfactoriness is the best translation. And within its um, realm, it encompasses everything that happens to us that we don't particularly like, that we don't appreciate, and it encompasses also that what we like, because that too is impermanent. So it actually is the universe. And that's the first noble truth of the Buddha's enlightenment statement, the noble truth of Dukkha, that it exists. And so, since none of us are immune from that because we're all part and parcel of this manifestation here, the personal experience of impermanence during meditation is a great help in recognizing that while we have likes and dislikes, whatever is happening, it's all also dissolving. For those people who cannot get to the tranquil aspect of the meditation, it's essential to do this. Because at this point, we then try to match the mental energy with the concentration. Now, if we have too much concentration, imagine having too much concentration, it's not wonderful. Um, the thing that can happen with that is a lack of attentiveness. A certain <coughs> lack of being aware arises where while the mind is concentrated and doesn't think, it doesn't have enough energy to be aware what it's concentrated on. And when such a person is being asked what they were concentrating on or what they were paying attention to, they say, I don't know, or they say, nothing. Well, that's not possible. If the mind is awake and aware, it's impossible to be aware of nothing. So it is a kind of mind which is easily concentrated but has not been guarding against this 
sort of um, not a drowsiness. It's more a um, almost like falling into a well and not seeing anything. That too is not uh, beneficial for meditation. So we need to balance. We need to balance the mental energy, which everybody has, but we very often don't realize how important it is. We use our mental energy in many instances in our lives just for that which we simply have to do. Make a living. Talk on the telephone. Read a newspaper. Learn something new. That's what we use our mental energy for because it's essential and necessary. But we don't realize how important it is that we keep it going and have it going for the meditation. Mindfulness outside of meditation will help us to have sufficient energy in meditation to be aware. The two will have to be balanced. Now, when we talk about concentration, the word for concentration in Pali is samadhi. And it is the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is called Summer Samadhi, right concentration. <coughs> and it always means just one thing. It means the meditative absorptions. I'm not going to explain them now. I will explain them tomorrow, or at least start explaining them tomorrow. But just that much, that the word concentration in this particular discipline of the Buddha means the full meditative absorption. Now, to get to that, we need methods, and that's what we're doing. We're using methods. And theoretically, all methods are equally good. And since there are many different methods, we can only choose a few of them and use the one that is most conducive to our meditation. So we have on the one side the over-energetic mind which needs to go towards insight. And on the other side we have the over-concentrated mind which has to arouse mental energy so that we have a balance. And if you have noticed that already in yourself, that you did stop thinking, but then you weren't aware of what you were doing instead. That's what happened. If you do stop thinking, and it isn't as difficult as it may seem in the beginning, there has to be total awareness of what arises instead. It's not nothing. The other two that are a pair and need to be balanced are faith and wisdom. We sometimes use the word confidence instead of faith because faith in our language has a bit of a connotation which isn't particularly useful. But the Buddha used it in a totally different way. He gave a simile of faith being a blind giant and wisdom being a small and very sharp-eyed cripple. And the blind giant 
called faith, says to the sharp-eyed cripple called wisdom, I'm very strong, but I can't see. And you're quite weak, but you've got sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulders. Together we'll go far. We say faith can move mountains. But unfortunately, if it's blind faith, it doesn't know which mountain needs moving. <coughs> so blind faith is shunned in the Buddha's dispensation. All right. Now you've had enough time to think of some question, maybe. Yes. You mentioned yesterday that the monk said that uh, he was enlightened because he slept when he slept. You also mentioned when you were about to do. It's the other way around. It's not that he was enlightened because he slept while he slept. He slept while he slept because he was enlightened. It's the other way around. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry? He still thought dreaming, is he? No. Enlightened enlightened people are not supposed to be dreaming. Well, he didn't expect you to all be enlightened. Why are you here if you're all enlightened? I mean, there's no reason to come here if you're already enlightened. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Much better to have some good dreams than nightmares, isn't it? Okay, anything else? Yes. Yes, that's a very good question, I tell you. <laughs> it's not easy. But there are uh, ways and means of doing that. And it is, I didn't mention it because it is an, it's fairly difficult and requires um, quite a lot of practice that has to go beforehand before one can do it. But there are certain indicators, namely, that before an unwholesome thought becomes fully blown and is really there, there's an unpleasant feeling. There's an unpleasant feeling that can be something like um, foggy, unclear, very distracted, um, a feeling of um, almost like being depressed, but not fully blown, but just uh, feelings like that arising. There's, there are feelings which are not very pleasant, and they are, so to say, the forerunners of the unwholesome thought. Because when that feeling is there and we're not careful and we don't pay attention, we're not mindful, then we will automatically find the scapegoat. And we will say, oh, I'm feeling terrible. It's because this person said that unwholesome thought. 
So if we become aware of these, they're very subtle sometimes, those feelings. They're not very strong. If we can become aware of that and immediately substitute them with something else, then we can prevent that unwholesome thought from arising. And that would be the best thing to do. But if we have gone past that moment, then having that unwholesome thought, then we learn to substitute. The ideal way is to drop it. But that is difficult. So we first practice with substitution, just as we do in the meditation, substituting any thought with attention on the breath. And if in our daily lives we're not able to substitute something unwholesome with wholesome, we may have to resort to thinking about something entirely different. If somebody is making us very angry, and we can't, for with any kind of effort at that time, change the anger into some compassion, we'll just have to take our whole attention off it, off the whole matter, and put our attention somewhere else and then get back to the substitution process at another time. Yes. I can't play act or dramatize, but I can tell you exactly what I mean by it. <laughs> when an emotion arises, and of whatever kind, but primarily the unwholesome one. And I will talk about the wholesome ones tomorrow. I'll talk about them tomorrow morning. So we'll just get the, keep the unwholesome ones in mind at the moment, because they're the ones that are bothering us. So when it arises, and we can't drop it, we can't substitute it, then it's necessary to inquire. Why am I having this? What has been the cause for this unwholesome emotion of anger, of dislike, of rejection, of resistance, of fear, of worry, whatever it may be? And having found a cause, and we're never at a loss for a cause, as long as outside of ourselves, then to investigate that answer. Now, let's say we're angry, as an example, at our neighbor, because the neighbor is continually making terrible noise, and this anger seems very justified. So we are angry, and we say it's because of the neighbor making all that noise. The first thing to do is to try to substitute the anger with an acceptance. If we can't do that, then to look, why am I angry? And what we will see, or it's a, it's a neighbor making the noise, but why am I angry about that? Because I want quiet. Why do I want quiet? Because I prefer it. Is the world made for my preferences? Question after question, I'll give you the bottom line, but you'll have to get to it yourself. The bottom line is always ego. There is no other bottom line. But that is not helpful until the moment one has actually come to it oneself. There is no other 
answer. That's the one answer. But as we go step by step inquiring into the cause and using the answer for another question, that may eventually bring us down to the bottom line. Maybe not. Whatever. As long as we think, believe, and are convinced that it's something outside of us that makes us act and react, so long we haven't seen our inner reality. Meditation is designed to seeing our inner reality. It's not easy. It's much too facile to say it. It takes time and effort. And the understanding that it's a necessity to do it. As long as we think it's out there, we're victims of out there. So that answers your question about how to investigate emotion. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Are all all preferences or choices ego at at that baseline? Not every choice. Not necessarily every choice. You might choose to be very helpful to somebody else. So that would be an altruistic uh, happening, wouldn't it? I mean, not every choice is ego-based. Sorry? Exactly. Exactly. So not every choice. But uh, as long as we believe that we are an absolute entity and individuality and that there is something there within us which gives it a me context, so long we will have everything discolored by that kind of thinking. And humanity thinks that way feels that way. There are very few people who don't. But that's what the Buddha taught, not to feel that way. But we'll have to get at that a little more slowly. But there can be altruistic choices, certainly. They are available to us. And it's the intention that counts, that's right. The Buddha said, karma or monks, I declare, is intention. Because the um, literal translation of the word karma is action. And that's how it used to be used before the Buddha changed it into intention. So karma is intention, not necessarily action, because intention is in the mind. Oh, anything else? Yes. terrible (laughs) we have three doors thought speech and action everything starts with the first one with the thought and we make karma with all three but even though thought is the instigator it makes the least heavy karma so if you're thinking about killing somebody but don't do it you are making bad karma but not as bad as when you actually do it (laughs) 
which you can easily find out because when you actually do it, you wind up in prison. Whereas when you're thinking it, you've just lost a friend, that's all. If you're saying it, you might have lost your reputation. So progressively it gets heavier. But bad karma is being made on all three counts. And the instigator is the mind. And that's why the mind is the one that has to be guarded and looked after. No, we're going into theory. That's not part of your practice. We'll talk about your practice, but not of theory. Luckily, Auschwitz is finished. So not, let's not talk about theory and past history. Whatever is pertaining to your own practice, that's helpful. Okay? In this case, thinking a bad thought, that's part of your practice, which means the four supreme efforts not allowing an unwholesome thought to continue, which is the second step of the force. That's part of practice. But that other stuff, that's theory. Okay? Anything else? Yes? Usually a thought, uh, and I was referring to those that might come up in meditation. If in meditation the same thing comes up over and over again and the meditation does not become possible because of that, that needs to be investigated. And the investigation then, and it's usually an unwholesome thought. Um, Well, it's always an unwholesome thought. And yes, the bottom line is ego, of course. Because if there's no ego... Why think? What for? You see, the whole problem that every meditator encounters is based on the fact that we only have a support system for our ego as long as we're thinking. I'm thinking, therefore I am. The minute the mind actually stops thinking, and it would love to do it if one just lets it, the first reaction, if it has never happened before, is usually goodness that is scary. Why? Because the ego feels threatened. It has no support system when we're thinking, not thinking. And that is the whole problem that arises for the meditator. Now that has sometimes some people have tried to circumvent that problem by just allowing every thought to, thought to come up. But it doesn't lead us anywhere. We're always allowing every thought to come up. That problem has to be overcome by realizing its cause and then letting go. It's a letting go process. In fact, if you'd like to describe the spiritual path with two words, it's letting go. That's what happens in meditation, letting go. Yes, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> the bottom line is ego. <laughs> Anything else? Think of yourself as your own best friend. <laughs> <laughs>
the one you can rely on, who is helpful and caring, loving and concerned. See yourself as your own best friend and fill yourself with the depth of sincere friendship for yourself and surround yourself with a feeling of love and concern for yourself. Think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you. Fill him or her with the depth of friendship, of care, of concern, and embrace that person. trying to transmit that you are there to help and to care. And now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here. Filling everyone from head to toe with the depths of your friendship, embracing everyone with care and concern, being ready to help, being reliable, expecting to gain friendship but only wanting to give it
think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Caring and concerned, loving and compassionate. Filling them with your friendship. Embracing them with your care and concern. Think of yourself as the best friend of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, those you might live with. Be their best friend. Don't expect them to do the same for you. Fill them with friendship and love. Be available for their concerns. Reliable and trustworthy, like a best friend should be. Think of your good friends and be their best friend. <coughs> Look inside of yourself and recognize what qualities are needed to be a best friend. Give them as your gift to your friends. Care, concern, love, helpfulness. Doing that for them which is difficult. Think of those people you meet in everyday life. Neighbors, colleagues at work, people on the street, in the shops, wherever you might be. Be their best friend. Let them all enter into your heart so that you can care for them, be concerned for them, help them.
think of anybody whom you don't like. And if there's nobody like that in your life, then think of anyone towards whom you're indifferent. And be that person's best friend too. Open your heart to that person too. Concerned about that person's well-being. Loving and caring. So that there's no blockage in your own heart. Now open your heart as wide as you can and let people enter into it. Let them find a home in your heart of friendship. Just imagine the people from around here and further afield, as many as you can think of, as many as you can accommodate in your heart. Let them all enter into it. Let your heart become so big that there's room for everyone. The heart of friendship. And put your attention back on yourself. And find that friendship for yourself, within yourself. Being your own best friend, responsible and caring about your own happiness. Looking after your own happiness. Feel that friendship for yourself. Fill yourself with it and embrace yourself with it. Feeling safe and protected and at ease.
may all beings be friends with each other.